We know you have lots of questions. If you think that you've developed symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Welcome to the podcast, COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. My guest today is Dr. Rachel Summer Claire Friedman, who is a family physician, mom of two, musician, juggler of many things, and self-described visioneer. Dr. Friedman currently practices full-scope outpatient family medicine in Sonoma County. She is among the founding faculty and associate program director of the Family Medicine Residency Program at Kaiser Permanente Santa Rosa, where she teaches both medical students and residents and has been involved in the creation of an innovative three-year curriculum designed to train family physicians for the future of medicine and community practice. She also serves as an assistant clinical professor in the UC San Francisco Department of Family and Community Medicine. Dr. Friedman received her undergraduate degree from Harvard University with high honors in history of science and her medical degree from the Yale School of Medicine, where she also received a master's in health science and completed published research on the electrophysiologic effects of relaxation techniques. While at Yale, she co-founded CAM at Yale, a multidisciplinary group offering education on evidence-based complementary and alternative medicine. Dr. Friedman completed family medicine residency at the UCSF-affiliated Santa Rosa Family Medicine Residency, where she also completed an integrative medicine fellowship. She has been recognized as a leader in the field of family medicine as a Pisicano Leadership Foundation scholar. Dr. Friedman has edited medical textbooks, written peer-reviewed journal articles, and been invited to speak locally and nationally on topics such as clinical nutrition, innovations in technology, preventive approaches to disaster medicine, and implicit bias and health disparities. One of her achievements to date as a musician-physician was co-authoring and performing in a full-length educational 80s rock opera called Diabetes the Musical. She is currently conducting research on a patient-centered approach to graduate medical education, the role of implicit bias in performance evaluation, and how virtual medicine and telehealth might mitigate the negative impact of disasters on chronic disease management and vulnerable populations. Rachel, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thanks so much, Ted. Absolutely. So, Rachel, you are a practicing family physician and a medical educator. Can you give our audience your perspective just broadly on the COVID pandemic? It's a it's a big question to ask. Um, I think that probably the as a family physician, we we specialize in community health. And if there was ever a medical condition that was all about community health and the ways that we are all interconnected in our communities and across communities, this is it. And so I think that it's as a as a physician, I've been staying, trying to stay abreast of all of the latest literature. And as an educator also, in a way, this is a I don't want to say an exciting time because this is a really scary and, and terrifying time for many people, but there's an exciting opportunity to teach our new physicians and medical students what science really is all about 
and the ways that science unfolds, the importance of the peer review process and the importance of really honoring the scientific process to learn about new things that we don't know about beforehand. Uh, I think as a family physician, I, my focus has primarily been on my, my patients, my family, my community, and also really honoring and respecting the expertise of our colleagues across disciplines, such as in epidemiology, especially in public health. So, you know, I think that uh, this is in, in many ways something that we will have never experienced in our lifetimes. Uh, as somebody who studied the history of medicine in college, I, I actually studied the period around, I didn't specifically study the, the influenza pandemic of, 2008, of 1918, but I, I did study uh, the role of, of narrative and the power of who is telling the story to shape people's experience of the story and uh, around that time. And so I think it's very interesting to think about how the telling of the story of this pandemic, 100 years in the future, say, will be shaped by who, whose story got told um, and who had the power. And, and I hope it'll be the, the people on the front lines and the people who were living in communities and, um, you know, those most vulnerable. Absolutely. I hope it is being told by those on the front lines. Now, Rachel, you mentioned the idea of community. How do you see the role of a primary care physician regarding community health both inside and outside of the healthcare setting? Uh, so this is definitely a passion of mine. I often tell my, my students, my patients, that health doesn't happen in an office visit. It happens out in your life. It happens in the decisions that you make every day, the lifestyle, that habits that you follow. Uh, your health is, a, is in many ways a result of your habits. And so I think that as family physicians, uh, right now especially, we have... I would say, in addition to continuing to practice and and talk to my patients and diagnose and treat everything, that uh, I would say three major roles that we have right now. Um, I mean, again, number one is is continuing to promote health, and so whether that is continuing to move to virtual and oh, I'm calling it, it's almost like home visits every day. I get to see my patients on video visits in their home and see their living environment and talk to them about checking in on them, um, talking to them about how, their, how, does their, how is their diabetes impacted by this? How is their depression and anxiety affected by this? Uh, how, do, how can they maintain social connection even while sheltering safely in place? So I, I think that the biggest, our biggest role has always been health promotion and prevention. And that's more important than ever right now. So fielding tons of questions from patients and really just trying to support them and check in on them and, and also deal with the little things that happen. You know, so I've had patients apologize to me. Oh, I'm sorry to be taking your time during a time like this with, you know, the bump on my toe or the rash on my face. And I say, you know, that's, nope, that's, that's my job. And, and that's what we're here for is, is to take care of your whole, your whole person because, um, you know, I think we're, we're whole personologists. We're not just COVIDologists, even though it seems like that during this time. Uh, I think that the second role that we play is, is that information navigators. And so uh, both in my practice and also I know that you've seen some of my posts on Facebook, uh, I'm by no means a, a well-known persona on social media, but uh, I've found that a lot of my friends and family and people in the community 
especially those that don't have medical background, are totally confused about what's going on and don't know what where to turn for reliable, trustworthy information because so much is unknown about this new novel virus. And so I think that one of the roles that I've tried to play is to kind of, especially in the about two months ago when things first started coming out, is reading voraciously from a broad variety of sources that I could find, both medical and articles, and trying to sift through using my foundation in medicine and microbiology, virology, epidemiology, which again, I do not claim to be an expert, but I think as physicians in general, we learn how to how to critically analyze sources, how to do primary literature review. And so I feel like I've been able to provide some some navigation and some sifting sort of the wheat from the chaff for other people. And uh, I, I would say the uh, one of the highest compliments I ever got, as I've ever received as a physician, was a patient who I guess had been looking on the internet to try to diagnose her rash or whatever it was. And uh, and at the end of our conversation, she said, Dr. Friedman, you are way more reassuring than Google. So, you know, I think if I can, I try to be way more reassuring than Google. And, and so I think that, again, information navigation is a big piece of what, what our role is now, both in the office and outside. And then I think the third piece is advocacy. And so as primary care physicians, we are, you know, we're, we're specialists, not only in in, like I said, whole personology, but I, I really like to promote, again, also to medical students who may be trying to figure out where to go, what field to go into, that family medicine is not generalists, it's not general medicine. Yes, we deal with every organ system and every disease and every age and stage of life, but we're really specialists and experts in both zooming in to understand the physiology and pathophysiology of what's going on inside a person's body, and then also zooming out to understand the experience, how that illness experience affects their family, how their disease process is influenced by their living conditions or their occupation, uh, how their access to resources will influence that disease process. And we're we are experts in the interconnectedness of all the things that go into physiology and pathology in a person. And, you know, there's never been a more important time, I would argue, to understand interconnectedness than right now when we're realizing how interconnected things like medicine and healthcare and the economy and education and global travel and all of these things, everything's really interconnected. And you make one domino fall and all these other dominoes fall. And then you write that one and all these other ones, something else happens. So, uh, so I think that, that it's been an honor to be a family physician always, you know, I, I love being a family doctor, but it's, it's felt particularly important for our primary care colleagues. Absolutely. And Rachel, you brought up these ideas of interconnectedness and advocacy and being part of the community and the COVID pandemic has highlighted social inequities and disparities, which lead to disparities in health outcomes. Can you take us through this idea, including how even social distancing can be a privilege? Sure, I can. I can try. I think that one of the, I don't, again, I don't know if you want to say 
fortunate or unfortunate, definitely an unfortunate aspect, uh, but hopefully for the future fortunate aspects of this pandemic is really highlighting the ways in which our system has already been so broken. And I heard a metaphor, I don't know if I'm recounting it correctly, but it was something along the lines of, you know, during this pandemic, we're all on the same in the same storm at sea, but we're definitely not all in the same boat. And it's it's not the same boat for someone who can socially distance on or in their villa um, or in their you know four thousand square foot house with a huge backyard for their kids to play in and a full time live in nanny or you know parent who can be at home educating kids compared to a single parent. Uh, who is an essential worker. Now, I'm sort of talking socioeconomically. The unfortunate reality in our country is that a disproportionate number of Black and Latino and um, you know non-white people in our country are essential workers and lower income workers living in higher density housing in urban settings. And you know, for somebody who is living in urban setting in a multifamily house, how do you how do you socially isolate if one person in that house becomes infected with COVID? Uh, you know, I think it's really important though to realize that when we talk about racial disparities in COVID, either COVID illness or mortality, that we are not at all talking about some sort of increased racial or genetic propensity to get a disease, just like this is not a Chinese specific virus. This is a virus that originated in the country of China. Um, there's nothing racial or genetically, it, there's no racial or genetic pre predilection of this virus. It affects all humans equally. There are other risk factors. But the fact in our country in particular that uh, our racial minorities, our non-white folks have such institutional racism uh, and that there's such institutional racism and uh, differing health access and differing socioeconomic opportunities for so many mean that by proxy, uh, race unfortunately becomes a predictor or a risk factor for, for more illness. I think that this is especially important in thinking about the ideas of social distancing, or I like to call it physical distancing, or self-isolation to prevent family members from getting sick, and how as uh, how as communities can we support those living in in higher density housing or uh, in areas where there may be essential workers that that can apply for unemployment because, for example, they might be undocumented who who want to get back to work and may go back to work at the expense of their own health or or someone else's. How do we support people in in following the public health recommendations in a safe way for their own health and safety and and really thinking about those vulnerable people. Yeah, thank you for shining a, a spotlight on some of those real, very real social issues and, and, and explaining some real complex ideas in in ways that make sense. And I feel like we could spend a whole episode Absolutely. On, on those topics, and maybe we should. Yeah. You're living in you. You work in Santa Rosa, which was just recently ravaged by wildfires. Yeah. What have you and your colleagues learned about dealing with situations like the fires that you've been able to apply to the COVID pandemic? 
yeah, again, this is one of those things like for better or for worse, we have experience with disasters. We as a medical center and then as a residency teaching new physicians, we have had evacuations two out of the last three years. And our medical center has been either closed or dramatically reduced in its capacity for sometimes weeks at a time. So it's been a very interesting road to find ourselves in another disaster. Obviously, this one of even greater proportion. I think the the biggest thing we already knew going into this is that virtual care works. And I know that you know this as well, being at a Kaiser Permanente facility, but we have been doing telephone and video visits and secure messaging our patients and having mail order pharmacies so that people don't have to come in to the pharmacy to pick things up. We've been already doing that. And we learned during the fires that if we ramped it up even more, doing something like 85%, two-thirds to 85% phone and video visits, mostly phone at the time, that and we could still actually care for, care effectively and safely and satisfactorily from the patient perspective with most basic healthcare needs, including many acute concerns as well as, and I, from my perspective as a primary care physician, more important, even more importantly with chronic disease management, because we know that when life gets stressful, that those dietary changes and that exercise regimen and that uh, commitment to quit smoking usually go out the door first, even though they're the most needed during that time. So we so number one, we definitely know that virtual care works. And so as soon as we started realizing that this virus might be circulating silently in our community, as soon as we had the first few cases, we started switching over as quickly as possible to virtual care. And, you know, I think one of the other things related to that that we've learned being faculty on a in a residency training future family physicians, we knew from a fire standpoint that wildfires and natural disasters that were related to climate change were probably are probably going to be the new norm for our rising new family physicians for the bulk of their career into the next 50 years. We knew that. And again, knowing that virtual care works, we've been training our family medicine residents in phone and video visits and how to really provide safe and effective and efficient care of our patients, even if both patient and physician were evacuated or unable to come in and meet face to face. So that's been, it's been really great because I feel like we've been really able to stay connected to our patients during this time. And so related to that, I think the second thing is what's in, that it's important is that a strong relationship to a primary care physician is really important in the time of disaster. I don't have research on this necessarily, but I know that for my patients who lost their homes in the fires in 2017, having a strong relationship with their PCP was really important to them kind of staying connected to the system and continuing to get their medicine refills or coming in and and sharing if they were feeling depressed or anxious. So that was really important. And um, and then I think the third thing is, is also just realizing that we're all in it together and recognizing that during this time, as physicians across the country and the world, you know, we're we're calling our patients from our our own homes sometimes and we are experiencing the same the same things that they are and so i think it's we've learned that it's it's okay to to have a little bit more of that personal connection with our patients and check in with each other cuz they're worried about us too science science science, science. science. 
Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. And so... Uh, making sure that we check in with our patients and let them know that we're okay has actually been a learning that uh, I didn't realize until I had a lot of patients check in with me uh, during the fires and the evacuations. And then again, now, you know, are you okay? So I think it's been a, it's been a, a like heartwarming realization that in times of disaster, people really care about their, the physicians that they're close to, and they want to know that they're okay too. Right. And I think it speaks to that sense of community and and I agree with you that it's been a an eye-opening realization about just how much care can be provided, medical care can be provided virtually. And we still need that office connection for some things, and you still need an operating room for some things and an emergency room for some things. But I think physicians across the country are, are really learning just how much can be done uh, virtually, and, and patients are learning that too. It, it's, it's So it, we're all learning it together. Yeah. And I, I think it is important. I think one important thing is to is to remind patients and also for us as physicians is to remember that not everything can be taken care of with a telephone visit. And that also, even though the medical center might be trying to limit patient care in order to keep everyone safe, that if you're having a heart attack, if you're having an emergency, if you broke a bone, you need to go in. We don't want there to be excess morbidity and mortality, excess suffering and deaths on top of the already existing uh, suffering and mortality from COVID because people weren't accessing the care because they were worried. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that message. That's a good public (laughs) service announcement. It really does need to be emphasized. Um, (laughs) Rachel, on a recent Facebook post that that I read, um, you provided some information regarding the ins and outs of accurate antibody testing and how this will be one of the keys to our being able to return to safe socialization can you give us kind of a, an overview of of that idea? Sure. And uh, again, with the caveat that I am neither a, a pathologist, virologist, epidemiologist, or expert in the field of antibody testing, but from what I understand, I mean, we I, I do know that you know there's there's a difference between the antigen testing or the viral testing. That's the test uh, or the PCR that actually sees if you have the virus in your system during active infection. And then like other viruses, your immune system kicks in and produces these antibodies, which we can usually see about two weeks after someone has been infected and presumably for a long time after. I think that there are so many caveats right now. Everyone wants to know. I feel like everyone, if if I could have a magic wand and wave my wand and magically tomorrow, things would be better without actually changing, of course, the pandemic. Everybody that wanted to could get a test to see if they have COVID right now, 19 right now, and everyone to be able to able to see get an antibody test and find out was that really bad cough thing I had in January was it COVID 19 or not? 
And I wish I could say that it was an easy answer, but the fact is that in order for antibody tests to be accurate, it has to have several things. Number one, it has to be able to test for those antibodies, but more importantly, it has to be able to test for those antibodies and only those antibodies. And so something that we call uh, specificity is very important. So with the with the virus test, we want we want there to be a high sensitivity. We don't want there to be a lot of false negatives. We don't want somebody walking around with COVID-19 actively contagious who tested negative. So sensitivity is something that's important for the virus test. But for the antibody test, we don't want someone not wearing a mask and running around thinking that they are immune from the disease who who had a false positive and isn't actually immune. Um, and so for that test, we need a high specificity. And similarly, we're related to the specificity, we need something called a low cross-reactivity. So we need to make sure that if you test positive for this antibody test, that you are supposedly immune to COVID-19, that you didn't just have any of the other number of coronaviruses a third of which, like, which cause a third of the common cold, um, and that that's actually what you have antibody to. That you had a cold in November, and now you're showing positive antibodies. So the evidence of te testing negative testing with cross reactivity is very important for the antibody tests. Now, I don't usually read the package inserts on these things. Uh, I don't have access to the antibody tests at home, but I know that the FDA, in trying to get antibody tests on the market, just like in trying to get the viral tests on the market, there's something called the emergency use authorization. I think that's what it's called. Uh, and usually this is this authorizes tests to kind of go through the system more quickly. And the FDA has, I believe, removed even the requirement for tests on the antibody tests on the market to have received a verification of the emergency use authorization. All that companies are required to do is to put their test on the market and tell the FDA that they plan on applying for it. So, you know, there have been dozens, if not, I don't even know, more than a hundred at this time possible antibody tests. And, and many you know, countries, I think the UK bought antibody tests that were not accurate. So my, my concern as people have been asking me about antibody tests, when can I get tested, is that it's really important that you have an accurate test. An inaccurate test is worse than no test at all because it changes, it may change behavior. It may make people, make people think that they are immune when they're not actually. It may change public health measures. If we think that a large population, percentage of the population is immune and they're not, and that has life or death consequences. Um, and so, you know, kind of what I've been telling people, there's the ethical problem of Schrodinger's cat, you know, the cat in the box, and you don't know if it's dead or alive. And so it, you just have to consider that it's both alive and dead at the same time. And so this is, I've heard, again, I saw a meme or something that was that said, this virus is kind of how we have to react to it is kind of like Schrodinger's virus. We have to both assume that we have it and assume that we don't have it at the same time. And if we assume that we both have it and don't have it or haven't had it at the same time and we act accordingly, we'll all be safe. <laughs> That's a really interesting way to put it. Um, so as there's more and more of a push to towards opening the economy and getting people back to work and getting to safe socialization, besides having expanded ability to test for COVID-19 and accurate tests to see who has antibodies, 
What else needs to be done in order to ensure that this will be a reasonably safe process and minimize the risk of seeing a second spike in COVID cases? Yeah, I think it's important to learn from past pandemics that the pandemic, the influenza pandemic of 1917, 1918, it kind of lasted for three years and the second wave was lethal than the first wave. And so I think we need to anticipate the possibility of that. And so, like you mentioned, uh, effective testing and rapid and widespread testing is going to be really important. I imagine that People who are on the front lines, whether that's essential workers or healthcare workers, would probably need to get tested regularly in order to make sure that they are not carrying the virus unknowingly. Uh, because, you know, one of the sneakiest things, one of the, if, if I were a virus, one of the smartest things about this virus is that it, it infects people days before they have any symptoms, as we know. And some people might not have any symptoms at all and be walking around for weeks, potentially infectious. So that's where the spatial distancing or social distancing, as people call it, comes in. And I think that's a really important piece because what we know is that if somebody is, we assume that people shouldn't go out if they are actively ill. If you're coughing and feverish and have a sore throat, this is not the time to be a hero and go to work anyway, right? Not in the time of a novel pandemic. And so I think in things like paid sick leave and, you know, all of these types of uh, public health and resource, economic resources to support people and staying home if they're sick and not going to work is going to be important. But then let's say you're not sick and don't feel sick. That's where wearing a face mask, covering your nose and your mouth, even if it's homemade and uh, made of cloth or made of any of the number of other substances, we know that asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic people who are wearing face masks in the presence of other people wearing face masks and practicing good hand hygiene and sanitizing their hands and not touching their faces and staying, you know, uh, ideally six feet apart indoors, moving outside, for example, um, and that you can dramatically reduce the spread, the, that silent community spread that has led to this virus being a globe, you know, global. And so I, I think that that's really important. And then certainly thinking about all of the places that people usually congregate. So office spaces, schools, and all of restaurants, all the places where people usually spend a lot of time in close proximity, we really have to start rethinking how do we do that in a safe way? Because we want schools to go back in session. I certainly want schools to go back in session. We want everyone who has a job and needs a job to go back to work, but we need to do it in a way that can be innovative, like, again, moving things outside, staggering shifts, um, doing as much home work from home as possible. And I think that this is where the cross-disciplinary communication, where you have people in medicine and public health talking to people in you know, public office and education and different industries to really brainstorm and work together to collaborate to figure out smart and safe ways to return to our some semblance of a normal life. That's great. And I was going to ask you about face masks as a way to get people back to work and being able to use the park and go to restaurants and non-essential services. So thank you for hitting on that topic. Um, Rachel, you have two young children and you're a practicing physician with shelter and home orders uh, in place and schools being closed what advice do you have for parents who are trying to juggle careers, take care of their children, educate their children, manage their home lives? What, what are you telling people? Uh, I, 
at this point, I feel like I'm almost looking for more advice than being able to give <laughs> it. But no, I, I think that, uh, I mean, one thing I've been saying is just that as a, as a formerly, you know, type A person, I always used to do the best that I can. That was kind of my mantra, you know, do the best that you can, do the best that you can. And I think ever since I had kids and as a parent, I've realized that, especially for working parents, you do what you can. You know, you you think about the optimal meal to serve your kid and what you get on the if you get a meal on the table and your kids eat it, you do what you can and that's a success. So um so I think the the first thing is recognizing that there's no perfect way to do this, that none of us have ever done this before. And uh and that we, we do what we can. Uh, I think it's, I think from a, from a working parent standpoint, it's been important to just breathe and take some time for my own self-care. Cause I feel like there's, you know, I'm, I'm never alone right now. I'm either at home, working at home, taking care of my kids. Uh, I can't really leave. So trying to take a little bit of time to exercise or go for a walk outside by myself with a face mask has been really critical. And uh, connecting with friends has been, you know, through Zooms or Facebook or other social media has been critical. I think from a newly homeschooling parent, um, so to speak, uh, standpoint, I've actually I've actually been helped a lot by reading some advice from other parents that intentionally have been homeschooling, which is that we are not trying, it is not going to be helpful to try to stuff and force a typical school environment into our homes. That's actually not our role. That's why we have amazing teachers and um, our teachers are doing their best to also do that and manage their own home life and their own experience. And so when I think about what do I want my children to get out of this experience and what do I, what do I hope they remember when their grandchildren ask them about what was life like during the pandemic of 2020? And when I think about what are the values as an educator that I want my parent, my kids to have, it's really just a love of learning. It's curiosity, it's kindness, it's a connection to nature. And so um, I was definitely one of those parents who on day one, you know, excitedly published my hour by hour homeschooling list of sub 27 subjects and it all fell apart on day two. And now we, you know, we have a whiteboard. So we try and orient my kids to the day because they're totally losing track. So we've tried to use calendars and remembering the days of the week and having special things on different days to try and orient. Um, we're trying to just really think about the opportunity to have so much quality family time and uh, during this time and have, we have a garden for the first time in a long time, and we plant because we planted seeds in our little planter box, our little uh, egg cartons, and uh, we've been playing more board games as a family. And remember that you know kids really need love and security and consistency and their family. And th my kids are actually the school aside; they're kind of having the time of their life. They love the fact that we, we don't have to rush them out of the house every morning. And they love the fact that they get a lot of free playtime. So I, I do recommend uh, trying to limit the screen time because I know that it definitely affects my kids' experience of a lot of things and kind of makes them more cranky. So we've been trying to ask uh, for weight, you know, trying to explore ways to continue learning without all of the screen time. Um, I know that older students don't have that option, but my kids being young, uh, it's been fine and it's been helpful. That's great. You know, these really are unprecedented times and everybody has a lot of demands and pressures being placed on them and economic realities too. 
So I appreciate you giving people the grace to say it's okay to be doing what you can and you don't have to be perfect. So, and I think it's important that we say that to one another. Yeah. Rachel, what are you saying to your patients to help the, in addition to what we just talked about, but what are you saying to your patients to help get them through this difficult time? And in particular, what are you doing to try to help support their mental health? Yeah. So I I think this is, it's a difficult time for everyone. And I usually think of, again, my my patients who are potentially most vulnerable during this time. So I've been trying to reach out to some of my elderly patients who may already be at risk of social isolation and just checking in on them and making sure that they're getting groceries and have their needs met. And, and sometimes, you know, just, uh, just talking to them for a while, uh, is really nice. And I feel like that's helpful just for them to know that there's somebody on the other end of the phone who cares. Uh, I have been trying to give my patients resources for both healthy lifestyle, which we know can support emotional and mental health during any time and especially a time of crisis. So trying to remind people that I know it's the last thing that you feel like doing, but if you just, I don't know, put on a your favorite music and just dance for a few minutes, it's going to be, you're going to feel better. And, and then also to turn off the news when they're feeling really anxious and focus on kind of a mindfulness practice, just focus on what's happening in your own room, in your own house. You don't have COVID right now. You're safe. Let's focus on what, what you can control and, you know, not spiral too much around the things that you can't control. And, and then again, trying to remind them that management of those all the other things, but even if it's the little bump on their elbow that they're concerned about, if it's yet one more thing that they're concerned about, then addressing that will help address their overall health. But I think that the social connectedness is the hardest thing right now for so many people and also fears and worries about finances. And so, you know, just really trying to share resources and then advocate for, for my patients when I hear their stories because I think that's a voice that we as physicians can do. So being in touch with our you know, community leaders and public health to try to share the concerns that my patients have so that we can think broadly about what can promote their health. Excellent. Uh, your, your patients are lucky to have you as their doctor. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, Rachel, one of the things I've been asking each of my guests is with the idea that small businesses and community organizations are really having a hard time during um, this pandemic. And, and these small business owners don't have the the funds coming in sometimes to keep their businesses going. And I, I want to give each of the guests a chance to give a shout out to an organization or a restaurant or a business in their own communities. Is is there any anybody that you would like or any organization that you would like to highlight? Um, sure. I, I mean, I have a lot of, a lot of restaurants and small businesses that I've been trying to support and share support with community folks around this time. I think, again, I, I always come back to the absolute most vulnerable in our community. And so, especially in Sonoma County, we probably have about 35,000 undocumented folks and many of them, you know, are either essential workers or may have lost their jobs and aren't eligible for unemployment benefits or other benefits. And, uh, you know, I have uh, patients or family mem- families of patients who are in pretty dire straits. And there's an organization called UndocuFund that was set up during the 2017 fires when many people lost their homes and their jobs to help support those who couldn't apply for other assistance and many of whom had children at home and um, were families. 
So they have now redirected a lot of the resources to helping those uh, most affected by COVID-19. And so I, I, I really think it's a, it's a great organization that can help support the most vulnerable in our community because we know that when we support the most vulnerable, it, it rises us all up and our, our community is only as good as its support of those who are the most vulnerable. That's a very worthy cause, and we'll make sure that a link to that organization gets put into the show notes. Rachel, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy home life and busy professional life to come on the show and talk with our audience through some of these you know, very important topics, and, and you did a really great job of it. We thank you for your professionalism and insights and expertise in all of these topics. Thank you so much, Dad. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. Have a great evening, okay? Thanks, you too. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant but remain calm. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.